Well, thank you to our music team. Appreciate you guys serving us so faithfully. Let me ask you, if you would, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. As we return back to the gospel according to Mark, we pick it back up in chapter 1. I hope that the, our short series on knowing the triune God was helpful for you. I forgot to, to mention and just a reminder that you're invited to the summer study, which is happening on Wednesday nights. We had our first meeting this last Wednesday. We're studying the subject of prayer. And in that first meeting, essentially, we learned that the habit of prayer is, or the uh, 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 healthy and strong prayer life is not built on the habit of prayer, but is actually built on the knowledge of God as we thought about the triune God and prayer uh, it was really helpful even to me, and so I hope it was helpful to those of you who were there. And so we'll continue that study, not on the Trinity in prayer, but uh, on prayer, and, and of course the Trinity is involved in all of that, this coming Wednesday night at 6.30 in the Fireside Room. So you're invited to that as we continue that study running through June. But this morning we come back to the Gospel according to Mark, and we will be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. When we were last in the Gospel of Mark and looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we saw his popularity skyrocket because of, number one, Mark says his authoritative teaching, but then number two, and and perhaps even more popular in those days, was the amazing authority that Jesus could exercise in healing the sick and in casting out demons. And so... Jesus had set his priorities of ministry in place for his disciples and demonstrated that by disappearing just at the height of his popularity in those days because he wanted to to stick with his main priorities of prayer and preaching the gospel, which was the very thing that he came to do. And so we pick it up then in just after that event where Jesus has not only demonstrated his ability to exercise demons and to heal, but now here in this passage, we see the power of Jesus to make the unclean clean. Follow along with me as I read then Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out. And began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we approach now the holy ground of your word, we pray that you would help us. We ask first of all that you would give us hungry, teachable, humble hearts so that we would receive the food of your word as the nourishment that it truly is to our souls. And we pray, O God, that you would give us attentive and sharp minds to think and to listen and to engage 
with the living, breathing Word of God. We ask, O God, specifically that you would reveal to us the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ and that it would be a reminder to us that what's true of the Son is true of the Father and the Spirit as well. That it's not as if Jesus is the compassionate one and you, Father, are the angry one. But you, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bear this very same compassionate heart. We praise you for the revelation that Jesus Christ is to us. Without him, we would not be able to know you. But in him, we know you. And we pray, O God, that you would continue to increase our knowledge of who you are and that it would deeply affect the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we speak. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A recent study published by Harvard just last year in 2021 cites what they call an epidemic of loneliness in America. An epidemic, of course, that has only increased thanks to COVID-19. The study suggests that 36% of all Americans feel serious loneliness. Not just loneliness, but loneliness, loneliness to the nth degree. Within that total of 36% Americans, there are two categories that make up the predominant categories. Young adults between the ages of 18 to 25 and mothers with young children. Mothers with young children say, the study suggests that 51% of them, 51% of them experience regular serious loneliness, as do 61% of young adults between the ages of 18 to 25. Half of the young adults surveyed said that in the few weeks leading up to the survey, no one had taken more than just a few minutes to demonstrate genuine care to them and ask them genuinely how they were doing. The feeling of serious loneliness, of course, has an emotional toll, but its effect is even greater than that. Studies show, in fact, that those who suffer from loneliness are far more likely to develop things such as depression, anxiety, and even sleep disorders. In addition to the effects on the mind, loneliness also wreaks havoc on the body. The, the fact of loneliness increases the risk of strokes, heart attacks, obesity, and chronic or acute pain. Loneliness, we could safely and accurately say, touches all of us, every part. Yet what could be worse than serious loneliness? I would suggest to you that what could be worse than serious loneliness is serious loneliness with the added extra weight of shame. This is the exact predicament that we find our leper in this morning in Mark chapter 1. 
I'm certain that if Harvard were around in those days and they had conducted a study on loneliness among the leper colonies of Israel, they would have concluded that 100% of them said they regularly wrestle with serious loneliness. Lonely or lepers, leprosy in the days of the Bible, in the days of Jesus Christ, was a destiny that confined you to a lifetime of quarantine and not in your own house, but outside of your own house. In fact, outside of the camp of Israel altogether. The law of Moses gave strict requirements for how Israel was to respond to the various skin diseases that fell under the label of leprosy. It makes for some really riveting reading in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, sort of like an ancient WebMD, maybe call it Torah MD or something like that. It not only prescribed the conditions that were labeled as leprosy, but it also gave the the requirements of the law of how the people were supposed to respond to the leper. Leviticus 13 verses 45 to 46 gives us a little snapshot of what that response was like. There we read, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Did you hear it? That most heinous word to an ancient Jew, unclean. The leper was the outcast of society. Not only did they, were they afflicted with whatever skin condition they happened to have, but they were forced away even from their own families. They were required to intentionally make themselves look disheveled, unkept hair, torn clothes, And not only were they required to make themselves look unapproachable, but just in case anyone wandered too closely without realizing they were getting close to an unclean person, the leper was required to put their hand over their mouth and yell out two times, unclean, unclean. You have to wonder in those days how many lepers perhaps even forgot their own names because they were simply known as unclean. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus summarizes their fate quite well when he explains the prescription for the law of Moses. He says, and for the lepers, Moses suffered them not to come into the city at all, nor to live with any others, as if they were in effect dead persons. And yet, they were not dead. They simply had to live as though they were dead to the entire society. Most especially, the the most central part of Israel's identity, the worship of Yahweh. They were not allowed to enter the tabernacle and eventually the temple because 
they were not allowed to enter the city at all. The man we see in our passage here in Mark chapter 1, Luke tells us in Luke 5, was full of leprosy. It seems that the man had been living in that condition as though he were dead for quite some time. You have to wonder how long had it been since he was able to join the people of God in the worship of God. How long had it been since he had celebrated the birthdays of his children with his family or hugged his wife? How long had it been since he received any type of human affection whatsoever? We can only assume that the worst part of the man's condition was not really the disease itself, but the total isolation that it placed upon him. One commentator says this about the lepers in those days. Lepers were victims of far more than the disease itself. The disease robbed them of their health And the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, occupation, habits, family, and fellowship, and worshiping community. It was indeed a death sentence. Yet they never died. Until it was their time, of course. Here in our passage, however, the leper who lived for what must have been an excruciatingly long period of total isolation meets Jesus. The most gloriously compassionate person to ever walk the earth because he is simultaneously the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, says Deuteronomy 34.6. This leper had heard of Jesus, no doubt. We've already seen in the gospel according to Mark that the fame of Jesus had spread everywhere, all throughout Israel. And so the leper heard about Jesus. And now the leper comes to Jesus. Here we see Jesus breaking down and breaking through the cultural norms and not only healing the leper, but touching him and making him clean. I can't help but wonder then if there's anyone here this morning who feels unclean, who needs to be touched by the compassionate pity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He won't touch you physically in the same way that he touched the leper. But if he touches you, you will know it. You will be forever changed. When we think of the word the words clean and unclean, we often think of someone who perhaps needs a shower or someone who has just gotten out of the shower. But that's not how Israel thought of those words. To be unclean meant you were unholy and cut off from the worshiping community altogether. To be clean meant you were fit to approach the holy God. Unclean was not just his status as being unbathed. 
unclean was the entire life that he lived, a life that demonstrates and gives us a clear picture of the life that the sinner lives. And yet Jesus touches him and makes him clean. This morning we see Jesus making the unclean clean. And I will tell you this. He continues this ministry today. As we approach this passage then, I want to look at it in three different parts. I tried to alliterate them, but I failed. So you probably don't care anyways. First of all, in verse 40, as we meet the leper, I want us to see a desperate situation. A desperate situation in verse 40. Notice specifically what Mark highlights for us. First of all, there's a man who is leprous. He has leprosy. We've explained the condition that that brought upon him already. It seems perhaps that this could have been what we now know is the disease called Hansen's disease. A disease that renders the nerve endings numb and dead, which might sound nice to not ever feel any pain, until you don't realize that you've just stepped on a nail perhaps and you walk 10 miles with that nail gouging your foot. Or you're eating your meal and it's extra chewy and eventually you realize that what you were eating was not your food but your own flesh. It was a terrible and still is a terrible, terrible condition. And so the leper is in a desperate situation. You can tell the man is hopeless because he breaks with all the normal cultural requirements and all the requirements of the law of Moses. What does he do? He comes to Jesus. Now we read that and we think, well, of course he came to Jesus. He has to come to Jesus But the Jews in that day, upon seeing this man come to Jesus, and and the readers in that day would have gasped at that. That is a no-no. Lepers don't come to anyone. And yet this man comes to Jesus. And not only does he come to Jesus, but he implores him. He begs him. He does the only thing that he can do. The only thing that you can do when you're desperate He implores him. And then, in a sign of extreme humility and total honor before Jesus, he kneels down. And so you can see the picture, can't you? Jesus likely is surrounded by crowds. After all, this is what Mark has told us has happened in the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's become so popular that he can hardly go anywhere without running into people requesting something from him, a healing or an exorcism perhaps. And yet as these crowds are gathered, there's one man who forces his way through the crowd and and likely they didn't realize who the man was because if they would have, they would have dispersed quickly. A leper was required to be 50 paces from anyone else at all times. And then of course, if someone came within that distance, they put their hand over their their mouths and they yelled out, unclean, unclean, as if to say, get away from me, I'm bad. But what do you do when you're desperate for the touch of Jesus? You don't let anything stop you. And so the man forces his way through the crowd. He falls on his knees. He implores, he begs Jesus. And he says then to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. 
Now, what do you notice about what the man says to Jesus? Is there a question in there anywhere? No. It's a factual statement, isn't it? It's an expression of the man's faith. The man is essentially saying, I know who you are. I've seen what you've been doing around here. I know what you can do. And yet, where does the man falter? Not in what Jesus can do, but in whether or not Jesus wants to do it. If you will, or if you desire to, you can make me clean. The man throws himself at the feet of Jesus. He's on his knees. He's imploring him. He's begging him. He's already broken every rule in Israel's rule book. And there he identifies himself as one who knows what Jesus can do. Yet in his heart, he's not quite sure if Jesus really wants to do it. Again, that same commentator says, the leper's longing is profoundly human. For it is not God's ability that we doubt, but only his willingness, if he will do what we ask. And don't you find that to be a reality in your own life? I know what God can do. I've read it. I've even seen it at various times in my own life. I just don't know if he wants to do it. You can feel the crushing weight of that, can't you? The leper's situation is desperate. And the situation that he has been living in for so many years leads him to doubt even the goodness of God. Have you ever been in a situation that leads you to doubt the goodness of God? Perhaps you're in a situation now where you're just not quite sure if God really wants to help you out. You know he can, you know what he's done in the scriptures, you know what he's done in other people's lives, and perhaps even you know what he's done in your own life and in your own experience. You just don't know if he wants to. And behind the veil of that question, we'll call it, behind the veil of that question lies the even greater and deeper problem. You're not sure if God is as good as he says he really is. And isn't this the human condition? Now, of course, we're Christians, right? We've got all the badges. We can pass all the quizzes. We did pretty well on the Trinity survey. We know the answer to whether or not God is good. The answer is yes. Yet, in the deep recesses of your own heart, when no one else is around, I wonder if you question at times Is God really as good as he says he is? That's exactly the desperate situation that the leper found himself to be in. I know what you can do. I just don't know if you want to do it. 
And so from the desperate situation, then we turn to a compassionate Savior. Verses 41 to 44 shows the response of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice, of course, that it takes up far more verses than the situation that the leper finds himself to be in. Verse 42 tells us, and immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, without any hesitation whatsoever, Jesus did not stop and think about it. Jesus did not respond with a repulsive reaction. He didn't say, ew, a leper. Immediately, the leper, excuse me, moved with pity. I was reading verse 42, my bad. It's still immediately. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Again, Jesus did not respond the way that you would expect one to respond when they realized that a leper was standing before them. And Mark tells us not first what Jesus did, but what does he tell us first? He tells us first what Jesus felt. He highlights for us the compassionate heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know Jesus has a heart? And did you know that heart is a compassionate and tender heart? It's a heart that is moved with pity by those who are unclean and who recognize it. What does it mean to be moved with pity? Well, we could, of course, do a technical word study, but there's no need for that, is there? You know what it is to be moved with pity because you yourself have been moved with pity at various times throughout your life. And you yourself, at least once, have experienced when someone else has been moved with pity towards you and given you an undeserved blessing. And now Mark records for us the Savior's heart. He's moved with pity. There is a textual variant here, an an, uh, an issue within the text. I, I looked through all the English texts that we use, I think, and so I don't think that any of our translations do this. They say, uh, rather than saying moved with pity, there is a textual variant that says that Jesus became indignant or Jesus became angry. And so I think that NIV, the old NIV takes it that way, but Uh, There's not very many English texts that do take it that way. And if that is the right textual variant, if that is the right Greek word, then what it means is not that that the heart of Jesus was moved with anger toward the man, but that just as Jesus was angered by the death of his friend Lazarus, Jesus was angry with the effects of sin and the affliction of sin upon his creation. How do we know that? Well, would an angry savior touch a leper? No. However, I do think most likely that pity or compassion is the better translation, but the reality is we see the very same response, don't we? First, his heart is moved, and then his hand is moved. 
He's moved with pity. And what does he do next? He stretched out his hand and touched him. What do we know about the healing of Jesus? Well, how much time do you have, right? We know that Jesus does not have to touch anyone in order to communicate his divine power to save or to heal or to relieve some type of affliction, does he? All he has to do is speak. His word is powerful and authoritative enough on its own. He did not have to touch the man. But what does he do? Touches him. And not only would the crowd and would the readers have gasped at the very fact that the leper approached him, but then when Jesus, this social rebel, touches a leper, they would have fainted. Jesus, don't you know he's unclean? Now you too are unclean. You have to get outside the city for X number of days. And then you have to come back in the city and present yourself before the priest and perform all the various rituals and all the various sacrifices. But what does Jesus say to the man? He tells him in answer to his question of whether or not Jesus cares, he says, I do care. I will make you clean. Be clean. Any other human who had touched the man would have, by that touch, been also considered unclean. But what we see here is that the compassion of the Savior overpowers the uncleanness of humanity. And that's the point. That's the point. Jesus is no regular human. He's the God-man. He is the suffering servant, the one who Mark has already explained to us in reference to Isaiah 42, the one who is filled with the Spirit of God because he is God. And so we are pointed then to the need to be reminded that God, his grace, always overpowers the sin of mankind. What does Paul say in Romans 5? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where the uncleanness of the man was so much so that it was full all over his body, the cleanness and the power and the compassion of Jesus overpowered his uncleanness. But we do well to pay special attention to Jesus' first words to the man, I will. As if to comfort the man. Jesus did not have to say, I will. He could have just said, be clean. But in answer to the man's question about whether or not God really cares, whether or not Jesus is really as good as everyone's been saying he is, Jesus says to him, I will. I do desire to make you clean. And not only do I desire to make you clean, but I can. Watch this. So in response then to our deep-seated doubts, the ones that you don't tell anyone else about because you're not sure what they would think of you, 
in response to our question of whether whether or not God really is as good as he says he is, Jesus says, I sure am. In fact, it's better than you even can imagine. And so he cleanses the man. Now notice that he has a, a medical condition that would require healing, right? But Jesus doesn't say to the man, be healed. And Mark doesn't emphasize any healing. What does he emphasize? Be clean. A cleansing. Again, it points us back to the unclean and clean categories that Israelites would have thought in. Whatever is unclean is unacceptable before God. Whatever is clean can be acceptable before God. In order to be used by God, you have to be clean. And so Jesus then makes the man who was unclean clean because he wants to. And then verse 42 says, immediately the leprosy left him. As if the leprosy was an oppression, just like the demon, Jesus commands it just like he did the demon, and it leaves just like the demon left. It left him, and he was made clean. The man who had, throughout the entirety of his condition, had to say, unclean, unclean, now Mark tells us four times, has been made clean by Jesus. And then in verse 43, we have those, the, the response of Jesus that oftentimes leaves us scratching our head. What seems like a, a, a terribly unevangelistic response, Jesus there says, He sternly charged him, the man, and sent him away at once. To, to sternly charge carries the idea of snorting with his nostrils. So you, you think of the bull that's charging and, and the snorting of the nostrils. It's, it's as if Jesus was, was agitated in his spirit and he said to the man, Now listen. Go away and don't tell anybody about what I've done. Verse 44 says exactly what Jesus said to him. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses had commanded for a proof to them. Not only was the man to not tell anyone about what had happened, but he was to fulfill the law, to do what the law told him to do, showing us yet again that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But Jesus demonstrates that he is greater than the law because he himself is the law giver. And so Jesus tells the man, now listen, you know what you're supposed to do. Go show yourself to the priest. Offer what Moses tells you to offer, and you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 14. Offer what Moses tells you to offer and present yourself so that they can make the determination that you are now clean. I could tell you about all the various things, all the law requirements from Leviticus 14 that the man was supposed to offer, and it would make for a very riveting historical study. Or maybe a very boring one. But that doesn't matter here in this case. Because Mark doesn't tell us. 
Why does Mark not tell us? Because the man didn't do it. Verse 45 then, this brings us to not only the, a desperate situation and a compassionate savior, but verse 45 highlights for us a surprising reversal. A surprising reversal. Verse 45 says, but, and immediately you can hear the music, bum, bum, bum. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Mark highlights for us the amazing reality that the unclean man had been now made clean and yet Mark also highlights for us that in his excitement, in his overwhelming joy, the man chose to disobey the word of Jesus. We might have some pity on him. This is where I've always kind of wrestled like, Come on, Mark, give the guy a break. I mean, if I had been leprous for X number of years and Jesus healed me, and even if he told me not to say anything, how could I not say anything? I'm free. I can be with my family again. I can go home. I can enjoy life no longer as an outcast, but as one who has been brought back into the fellowship of Israel itself. How am I supposed to not tell anyone about that? Because that's what Jesus told you to do. That's how. What does Mark emphasize for us about the ministry of Jesus Christ? Not that the most significant thing was the exertion of his miraculous power, but that the most significant thing was the preaching of his word and the obedience to respond to that word in the exact way Jesus tells you to. That's a parable for modern times, isn't it? We all face this very same temptation. Well, I was just so excited, I couldn't help but share the news. Well, yeah, but it was kind of gossiping. Well, the Lord understands, does he? Has he not told you how to speak and not to speak? In our elders meeting this week, we were having a conversation. We're reading through a book called How to Build a Healthy Church, and we were studying one of the chapters on church discipline. And one of the questions that we were working through together was going through various church discipline passages on, and the question was, how does the Bible, this is paraphrase of course, but how does the Bible tell Christians to respond to other Christians who have been disciplined out of the church? And we went to various passages, Matthew 18, of course, which tells you to treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile, meaning they're one who needs the gospel. But then also in 2 Thessalonians and in Titus 3, there are some other, and in 1 Corinthians 5 as well, there are some other passages that quite honestly are hard to swallow if that person who has been excommunicated from the fellowship of the saints is a family member or a friend. Because the Bible tells you you're not supposed to eat a meal with them any longer. In fact, the Bible tells you that you are supposed to treat them like a brother, not an enemy, but you are supposed to 
give them the type of neglect that leads them to be ashamed of themselves. The Bible's words, not mine. That's kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? And yet, we are faced with the choice. Do I obey Jesus? Or do I do the thing that I desire to do? That sounds really mean, Jesus. How am I supposed to not eat a meal with someone who's been disciplined if I, if I really love them, if it's been a deep relationship for years and years? How am I supposed to do that? Surely you understand, Jesus. I mean, I can't be expected to do that. And yet, what would Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, of course, that is not to ostracize to the point where we just treat them as if they're trash, but it is to pile on them the weight of their own sin so that they will repent of their sin and be restored to the fellowship. And it is to emphasize to the one who has broken fellowship with the body of Christ, things are not okay in your life. And if you continue this path, it will lead you to hell. And that's much worse than not being able to eat a meal with me. And so we might understand the leper's condition. How could he not tell someone? But then we bring it into the reality of our everyday lives and we realize this is a little bit more difficult than we might expect. Yet what must we do? We must obey Jesus. We must prioritize obedience to the word of God over against our desire to do anything else. However, the man failed to do that very thing, and it caused consequences for Jesus. Why did Jesus not want him to say anything? Jesus has already known, of course, he knows it, but he has already experienced what type of popularity his miracles have brought to him. And yet Jesus has emphasized clearly the point of his coming was not his miracles. The miracles point to the point. The point of his coming was his preaching of the gospel. And now he can't even get into towns to do the very thing he came to do, to preach that gospel. So instead of going into the towns, he's isolated to the desolate places, but his, his popularity is such that people still want to come to him, showing us that no one can thwart the plan of God. But I want you to remember something and notice something. Where do you think the leper lived before his encounter with Jesus that made him clean? He lived outside the camp. He lived in the desolate places. And yet, where does Mark tell us Jesus was confined to because he couldn't enter towns anymore? In the desolate places. What is God doing here? What is the Holy Spirit doing here? He's teaching us of what the servant came to do. The son of man did not come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come as a point of popularity, but Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to make the unclean clean. Jesus went outside of the camp, the writer of Hebrews tells us, so that all those who are outside of the camp 
Everyone here could be brought not into the inside of the camp, but into the very fellowship of God. And so Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The gospel, my friends, is far more glorious than just the fact that your sins are forgiven. They are in Jesus. But how did that happen? Jesus became a curse so that the cursed could become blessed through his blood. Jesus went outside the camp in his crucifixion so that Gentiles and everyone else who were unclean could now, by his blood, be considered clean forever. This is what Jesus does. He reaches out and he touches the unclean so that they might be clean. And so we're back to the question. Is there anything that makes you feel unclean? Maybe it's that secret sin you've been hiding that no one else knows about. Maybe it's the way that other people talk about you that isn't so kind. Maybe it's a, a million different things, but, but there it is, that feeling of uncleanliness that you just can't seem to wash off, the stain that just won't come out. My friend, you need to know at the touch of Jesus, that sentence is changed. If you would put your faith in this Savior, this compassionate Savior, you would become clean forever. And if you have put your faith in this compassionate Savior, then you can no longer put a sentence of unclean on yourself. And neither can anyone else. The devil himself cannot pronounce that against you. Because Jesus' word is final. You are clean.